Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argeris and this week I'm looking for the best book about little histories. No, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Micro histories. Very small histories. Like Napoleon. Really small. History. I know that was... Pro- Ian's about to tell us how that was propaganda. He's going to be like, actually... Um, uh, I don't actually know. I'm just... I'm just yeah, my favorite thing about Napoleon... Then. It's time for the... Can we have the, the Napoleon segment theme song, please? Uh, uh, roll, it, roll Napoleon theme song. Napoleon! Napoleon. Theme. No, it would be French. Um, my favorite Napoleon fact is that in a lot of his pictures, a lot of paintings of Napoleon, he's painted putting his hand on his tummy, but it's not clear why. It's not clear, like, maybe he, th- I mean, I, art historians sound off in the comments. Maybe it's because he had a tummy ache all the time, mm. or maybe he thought this made him look more imposing. Right. But the most recent research I did, which was many years ago, suggested that art historians don't know why he is routinely painted with his hand on his tummy. Maybe like, kind of rammed was, in his shirt. Maybe he had a weird hand. Maybe he just had a weird little hand. Oh, maybe he kind of could paint that out, though, Joe. It's not a photo. Also, <laughs> Jesus. And then also, additionally, that's crazy. I thought they've definitely had a story about that stupid pose. It's pretty, pretty like the eye grabbing part of that, you know, portrait. It's, it's like the thing that's maybe second most famous about Napoleon. De- supposedly. OK, most- supposedly this is from Vox. Um, concealing a hand in one's coat has long signified gentlemanly restraint and was often associated with nobility, but okay. But you don't, I don't, you don't see a lot of paintings like this, so I don't buy it. Vox. Um, yeah, he was definitely, um, known for his restraint, uh, Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sometimes is it possible, Ian, friends. Sometimes when I'm wearing like a sweatshirt or something like that, or some sort of shirt with lots of pockets, I put some snacks in there for later. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. if I'm on the couch or if I'm sitting Tummy down snacks. in like a chair. Yeah. So maybe is it possible that he's just reaching for a Kit Kat? Cinnamon bears. Cinnamon Calm bears. down a little. Well, I would, I would, I would point, make the same point to you that Joe, you just made to Joe. It's not a photograph. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's not like the, 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 they keep, they kept. And to help me are two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. <laughs> I really love the idea of candid paintings, like candid yes. portrait paintings. Um, hi, Nick. Why, why My name's Joe Holshue. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Joe Holshue. I'm a high school English teacher. And if you're looking for a tiny little baby history, or a, a, a micro history, a history about a very small thing thing something that might seem insignificant but actually ends up to be quite big i brought a book about cod um cod codfish it's called uh cod the fish that shaped the world it is the fish okay great it's the fish it's the fish it's the fish hello guys. uh hello nick hello joe hello lit heads hello. today my name is dr ian DeYoung. i'm a high school english teacher and i'm feeling salty because i read okay. mark kurlansky's book salt colon a world history uh, and I just want to emphasize that this is bigger than a fish that changed the world. This is an actual world history. Mm-hmm. I'll get into oh. the title, but it's a really good book. It's salty. Ooh. Feeling salty. Um, I should also wound. say here that my book my was book also is very good. Written. Well, no, oh, my book was also God, written by Mark Kurlansky. We both have the same author of this week. And this is a Lithead recommendation. Yes. Yes. Thank you to Turi for this Lithead recommendation. Um, Lithead Turi. Um, Turi works in a truthberry, and I just want to just call that out mostly so I could say the word truthberry again. Um, thank you, thank you, Terry. This clap You're, is for everybody. Yeah. Well, it's really for all of you litheads. 
Yeah, yeah. but it especially nice. for uh, the first responders, the essential workers in truth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is for the, for the troops. <laughs> May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> I recently received uh, some feedback from a friend I hadn't heard from in um, probably six years. And um, no, that was me, Linhead. Maybe four me. years. And um, was it five he, years? He recently said to talk less. <laughs> uh, and no, apparently Nick. is a fan of the show and listens. Uh, all the time, and but hasn't <laughs> talked to me in three years. Just kind of slid into the DMs and said, "You should talk less." In the no, beginning, I gotta be, we gotta clarify. Are you saying that he was giving you this advice just for life in general, or for the, oh, the show no, specific to the show? I should have clarified. Oh, okay, thank you, Ian. Um, was yeah, that so, was it directed at you or all of us? Was it like oh, Nick? You should talk less, or there's way too much shucking and jiving at the beginning of the show. Just in general, there needs to be more hmm. silence in this show. Probably, it's probably both. <laughs> more meditative. Well, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a week clear as we call it strongly podcast or every week. Podcast. Thank you, Joe. Uh, where every week we pick a theme and Joe and Ian, two high school English teachers. Duke it out. <clears throat> yeah, they duke it out um, and uh, bring book recommendations. And just to upset one of them, we pick a winner. And uh, we do have some show rules to keep us on track. Rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers, gentlemen. Uh, rule number two, omit needless words, Joe. Oh, and rule words. number three, winning isn't... Win only winning matters. Only winning matters, Vince Lombardi, in honor of the Green Bay Packers who won. Yep. Hey, back to again. the football season. Yep, here we are. Huck that pigskin. I really actually Shoot like, that goal. like football. So I don't sure. want do, to do the sports ball thing. I, right, I really no, like right. football. It's like we can acknowledge like we grew up watching the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, and yeah I, do, I do really like it. Yeah, mm -hmm. but yeah. I'm not a jack. Right. I think I like the thing best about football is that it comes once a week and that really gives me time to marinate. If it's a win, I'm on a high all week. If right. it's a loss, I'm brutal to everyone might around not me see next all week. week. Yeah. Ian right. kicked his yeah. dog. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> of course, we do have shadow rules on this podcast. And they are as follows. Fill the jar two-thirds with brine. Add whatever vegetables you like and whatever spice you like. Cover, and the vegetables are ready in two days. Oh, my God. Is your book full of recipes, Ian? Do you have a book it's full of recipes? It's another recipe book. I have so many recipes in my ah! book, too. <laughs> I feel like this is one of the ways Mark Kralinski makes sense of the world is recipes from the year 3000 BC. Mm -hmm. I bet they're very, very simple. Do you know what I mean? Like back then, they didn't really, they didn't have like fresh turmeric. Say you were a caveman, like say you were a caveman a long time ago, right? And you had like a hot rock to cook on and you found some eggs. You could make scrambled eggs. Like you couldn't salt them. You couldn't, you couldn't right. like, but like, isn't that amazing? Like cavemen yeah. might've eaten scrambled eggs. Well, and more importantly, we like, that's still good. We're oh, like, yeah, I'd still so like some good. scrambled eggs. Maybe well, that's actually, why certain simple foods are the best is because it's just further ingrained in our, you know, DNA, this this most simple food that has existed for the longest, right? Because Sure, yeah, it looks like well, actually, to say. they didn't come, they didn't Caveman start with did pizza. Do you know what I mean? Like they started Caveman with eggs. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> well, but not pepper. We'll get to pepper in chapter two. 
<laughs> uh, Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds and tell me what your book is about? Nick, wars have been fought over it. Revolutions have been triggered by it. National diets, you know, COD's super popular is what I want to say. This book spans 1,000 years and four continents, from Vikings to Clarence Birdseye, the frozen vegetable guy. My author, Michael Lansky, Ian's author, to introduce explorers, merchants, writers, chefs, fishermen whose lives have been interwoven with this prolific, prolific fish. It's filled with recipes from the Middle Ages to present, and it's a story that brings world history in line with cod history. Um, Joe, yes or no answer. Does your book get into cod liver oil? Uh, <gasps> yes. Oh, good. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Lidheads. Ian's Lidheads. excited do, about that. Do please sound off in the comments about all the times mm -hmm. you had cod liver oil fed to you as a child. Oh, God. May I start? Spoonfuls of it. Please do, Nick. Oh, my God. I didn't <laughs> think anything could taste that bad. <laughs> Ian, you have 30 seconds to tell me what your book is about. I think by this time we've established that these books adopt a clickbaity thesis. This familiar thing is way more important than you might think. But Mark Kurlansky does do a good job arguing that salt is an overlooked engine of social change for the last 10,000 years. From the French Revolution to India's struggle for independence, from Saharan Sebka to the crusty shores of the South San Francisco Bay, salt, a world history, maps how salt has permeated human history. Did you reject the premise what? of this book? No. I think what he oh, was saying. Then I misunderstood you. No, no I, I, I agree. I think I agree. He, all these books are like, hey, you know this thing? It's actually way more important than you might imagine. Oh, it's not. <laughs> it's what you're saying. It is. Like, in this case, in this case, I think it is. Like, it, it's a hard landing to stick, and, and I always am, am suspicious. But in this one, I was like, suspicious. okay, Mark, you got me. You got me. Did you say, what did you say, Joe? Hold on. Let's I not said, blow past that. I said sufficient. Because that's really bad. Oh, boy. Sufficient. Oh. Excellent. Okay. Let me mark that down. Um, <laughs> For a point uh, in the positive probably, column, right? Probably. Why don't you just hold on to that, Joe? Mm -hmm. So um, sufficient. Yeah. Think of some more great jokes. And then you can, so you can go second. And then we'll just start with Ian. <laughs> I will start brainstorming. And you think about what you've done. Um, <laughs> Ian. Yeah. You have 45 minutes to tell me about your book. <laughs> Good. I'm going to need a lot more than that. Just take up um, Joe's time. <laughs> a, a lot of this book is just funky facts. I'll get to like. Ooh. Now I should. I like should start with what it's about. I should start with what it's about. Yeah, you uh, should for sure. But uh, so much of this book, I was just like frantically jotting down. This is ridiculous. I can't believe this is true. And we're, we have a whole section. I have a whole section of my, my notes called some bullet points where I'm just going to tell you some things from the book that I think are amazing and good to know. <laughs> okay. So uh, the book is, the book starts in ancient, ancient prehistory. He spans like the research he did for this book spans so many different fields. He's looking at like language history. He's looking at old, old books. He's looking at um, like monuments and, and hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphs. I was going to say like hieroglyphs. Broken pieces of pottery, shipwrecks that have been preserved in the ocean, like early, early stuff. And he just kind of gradually walks us through what we know about salt from like the old, old days. What we know about salt from Bible days. What we know about salt from Rome and Greek and Roman days. On, on, on. He starts in the Mediterranean, but he, then he goes quickly to China. This is a totally global book. And the whole first section is just focused on kind of ancient salt. 
The middle section is focused on medieval salt, and the and the final section Ooh. is focused on modern, modern salt. Modern salt. I knew modern wow. salt. Tell us about modern salt. Joe, how many questions do you have just bubbling right now? I, my first thing, when you talked about like, my first I'm question for is how far into the book does the phrase pillar of salt come up? Like, when do oh. we talk about Lot's wife? Is, oh, biblical, bi- Bible reference. Bi- biblical. Bible. Yeah, good, good Bible. Call. Um, there's a wonderful section on on the on the. Um, this is a really weirdly funny book. Um, there's a section where he starts by like, he, he, when he talks about Jesus in your book. <laughs> he starts. He he talks about um, salt in the the nation of Israel kind of late in the book. Okay. Um, because a lot of that's focused on yeah. kind of modern day <laughs> modern salt, salt, the Dead Sea. <laughs> so I guess um, we're good, done salt. with questions from Joe. Uh, for for <laughs> no, the rest no, no. There's of a really time. good thing with a with a pillar of salt here. Okay? okay. He talks about this this mountain by where they believe the 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 this city of Sodom was called Mount Sodom. And he talks about how the mountain is pure rock salt. And he talks about how every now and then a new kind of pillar or or an outcropping is eroded. So it stands by itself. And the tour guides always say, see that over there? That's Lot's wife. And then eventually the pillar erodes and breaks and they just hang around for a few more decades. A new pillar kind of comes, gets shaped away because salt is soluble, right? And and the, the tour guides like, Hey man, See that over there? Yeah. That's Lot's wife. It's yeah, we really got good. That. So yeah, I have great. a question. It's tour guide stuff. Um, that is tour guide stuff. Okay. Let's take a step back. What's what's like the promise of this book? Is it like here's how the spice has is salt a spice? Here's how the spice no, it's has a what? It's a mineral. It's the only rock we eat. Well, it's the only rock you eat. <laughs> it's the only rock <laughs> we should eat. <laughs> Um, okay. So you put the rocks on the eggs. So is the promise of this book, like you get to learn about its impact or you get to learn about like other societies? Like, is it more of like, you get to like learn about history or is it really more about, you know what I mean? Like, or is yeah, it just yeah, all yeah. encompassing? This yeah. is every so, which so, way so to look at salt. What, what do you, like the question is like, what do you get from this? And you do get a lot of knowledge about salt that I did not previously have. Um, and actually this is our Hobbit fact for the day. This knowledge about salt helped me understand something in the Lord of the Rings in, I believe it's the return of the King. Samwise Gamgee has salt. There's a part where he's uh, two towers. He's cooking some stuff and he's got some little pan of salt and he says, I don't go anywhere without my salt. Mm-hmm. And I've always sort of in the background wondered like, where did that come from? But this book really kind of drove it home for me. Where did he get his salt? You get salt from evaporating seawater or mining it, but the Shire doesn't have a coast. So either this salt got traded in on a trade route, like on Very middle, good. like middle earth from middle earth trucks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and there, that would mean it'd be quite expensive or the hobbits had big old salt mines in the Shire, which they controlled, which doesn't really match my mental image of hobbits. No, they're not like dirty holes. They're comfortable holes that they, yeah, like, they are big into clean. mining. So I think that probably Samwise Gamgee's little bucket of salt is a kind of a precious resource. And when he sprinkles it on the taters and the coney mm. in the two towers, it is um, kind of a beautiful what is moment of him. What's what's taters? What's, what's taters? <laughs> Oh, good one. Good. We should um, have a competition. We shouldn't. So, so you learn about salt. Yes. But I think more broadly, more broadly, you learn about 
how the, like the place of salt in human history. Yeah. And you don't realize that there's kind of this gap until you read the story and you're like, oh, dang. So, for instance, Nick, you've often heard like the, the French Revolution was sparked by discontent from the peasants, right? Like that's just, this is the general the general idea. For the sure. peasants were angry, right? Yep. They crabby. But when you dig into it, as Kurlansky does, you discover that France had a ridiculous and uh, oppressive salt regulation and taxation regime, oh which made salt way too expensive for poor people. It privileged people in various areas who are producing salt and deprivileged other people, oppressed other people, and in general was the most corrupt, like one of the most corrupt governmental salt situations anywhere. And so the... Uh, peasants specifically explicitly said, we want to overthrow the whole salt problem uh, that this oppressive government situation uh, uh, structure is setting up. So the French Revolution is in part driven by wait, salt. Now, wait, salt. <laughs> is, is your book just a series of stories that we all know and inserting salt into them? <laughs> is, do you know who actually killed Batman's parents? It was so salt. Is there all well, this is the, this the, is the risk shooter? of this genre. Salt. Salt. Is the danger, the danger of this genre. The danger of this genre is um, just like kind of the cartoonish. Hey, you know, this yeah. famous thing. It was salt. This famous thing. It was salt. So, no, he doesn't do that. So we, Kennedy assassination. Salt. He, salt. Princess he talks Diana, about, salt, salt. He talks about the Civil War. Didn't salt the road. He doesn't say the Civil War is all about salt. He says the Civil War is about, you know, destroying yeah. um, slavery and stuff. But what he does then is like, you all know the story of the Civil War. So let me tell you about how bad the salt situation was in the South and how that contributed to them, like kind of being miserable and not being able to last very long because they didn't have salt production down there. The North did. The North was good at importing salt. And so the Northern soldiers were better fed and in better shape. And the Northern horses had salt to like stay like salt alive. Licks. They got to lick it. Yeah. So so he doesn't do the thing where it's like every famous every famous deal is because of salt. But there are a couple of famous deals which are absolutely because of salt. I've got another one. I'll spoil the other one for you because Please. I wanted to save this one. But um, you know, Gandhi. Oh boy, Mahatma Gandhi was like a. Who was he? Who was he, that he, guy? He was. <laughs> he was like a organizer and a peaceful guy, and he wore robes and he was bald. He did and, wear robes? Uh, ben Kingsley, uh, orange. How am I doing? Not great. Yeah. India. India, good. And what was he interested? What did he want? Peace. Probably Peace. He wanted Indian independence. India was Indian a colony. Oh, okay. Yeah, for sure. But the way that he expressed this civil disobedience, he was a big, big, big guy for civil disobedience. The civil disobedience he did was he marched with a bunch of his like followers to the Indian coast, a major salt producing area that had been like salt production had been banned. He went there and his first act of civil disobedience was picking up a piece of salt from the coastline. The British government had said, you may not manufacture salt because your salt is too good. It brings down the value of British salt. <laughs> so it's banned. Yep. And the way that Gandhi went and disobeyed was going and picking up salt. This is the symbolic. But then the rest of them, they all got into it. And eventually, yes, they earned Indian independence. But perhaps more importantly, mm-hmm. they restored they restored the, the Indian like, salt production there. So the point is... Salt, he's arguing salt has a place in world history, which we haven't just just haven't noticed because it's it's kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when you pay attention to the salt in the historical record, all of a sudden you discover that everything is salty. 
So when they say like, I don't know if this book covers it, but when they say like, oh, the first wars on Earth were, you know, over spices. What does your book say about that topic? Lots of salt wars. Lots of, Lots of people fighting. Because the thing is, salt is like necessary for survival. And salt is also not everywhere. You can't just like, like dirt. You can plant things in dirt and grow food, but you have to go to where the salt is, especially if you're right. like an ancient peoples. So because it's a rock. A lot of the covered. early the early sections of this book are focused on um, people building salt works and then other people coming in and destroying them or capturing them. Um, there's a lot of focus on um, kind of uh economic or or commercial battles so um venice is a big salt producer and then genoa is a big salt producer and then they kind of like they clash as the the mediterranean world's biggest salt guys and one wins and the other loses i'm not gonna tell you who but it's uh, you've mentioned like two examples that are like more like i guess well one was physical but like i guess more like indirect like there's like some sort of like a government right and like there's right. trading and it's there's more civilization right it, like, okay what nick wants to know is was there ever anybody okay. who had a <laughs> salt vault a vault of salt that got raided by another right. country and that vault of salt under assault right was taken under assault that country. good that was a good one actually joe yeah, um thank you. i'm picturing two cavemen like tribes fighting right. with a a mountain of salt behind one of them and mm -hmm. behind the other one, just a lot of eggs. And they're like, give me that salt. <laughs> Did that ever happen? This meat is a little bit bland. I feel like something should <laughs> needs to take on its flavor. I can't live in this flavorless world. In those situations, they wouldn't fight. <laughs> they would just trade. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, there are certainly some moments like this. There are also salt vaults, which I can get into later. Mm -hmm. um, and but a lot of this is... Um, like who has salt? What power does it give them? And how do they parlay that that in kind of trade commodity into? It's kind of like settlers of Catan, actually. It's basically I was Dune. How much like Dune is this? Yeah, what book? tell us about um, the spice? There are no massive salt worms. I am sorry. Um, that would be cool. There is a cool bit where um they're digging in a mountain made of pure salt and they discover oh, a mummified corpse from thousands of years before. Okay, that's nice. Heaven. Yeah. There's another time when the, they're rampaging through, I think recently in the last 20 years or so, well, 40 years, because this is written in 2000, they're rampaging through Germany somewhere and they bust into a salt, a salt mine the, where the Nazis had been stashing like art and gold bullion and paintings and things. Yeah. And the salt had just sort of like sealed it shut and then sealed this, um, this vault, this salt vault shut and then just preserved them. And they were just kind of hanging out there in the salt, in the salt tomb uh, for, for a long time. Um, how does pepper fit into all of this? Okay. So that's actually a question that I have. And I actually talked to Megan about this earlier this week. And as I was like, okay, I understand how, but like how salt became a table ingredient. Salt intensifies flavors. Like yep. it, it does everything. It's the bomb. But pepper is not like salt. Pepper is a spice. Pepper's so not the why bomb. do we, Ian. Why do we have salt and pepper on our table and not salt and cardamom or salt mm, and the quick turmeric. answer to this? The quick answer to this is that the, the, we when you say we like you're talking about maybe North America. Yeah, but yeah. if you go and you go to Mediterranean countries, um, they have different uh, different spices. You go to India, they have different spices. The, uh, he has a whole section how in Sweden 
uh, because salt was hard to come by. They mix sugar and salt. And so sugar salted um, sugar salt sugar salting as a seasoning and as a way to cure things is very common. So salt and pepper is a North American thing. I'm not sure. Maybe because um, because uh, pepper is easily grown in South uh, the Southern parts of America, Central America, Latin America. And so the imports easy. I'm not certain on that one, but I will say that it's sounds like you made it up. I'll be honest. Well, there is (laughs) that last part in the in the section of this that focuses on Tabasco sauce. There is discussion of importing peppers from I'm looking up the history of black pepper. I think big Mm -hmm. spices behind this one, guys. I think we just been marketed too really well. Is it, no, the, it's the, the McCormick's. Is like it the McCormick's it's along? McCormick's. Yeah, come on. It's it's like this. Oh, it's when you, if you look up why is black pepper so popular in North America, McCormick is like the first hit. Oh god. <laughs> oh boy. Our spice scientists, guys. I want to tell you a couple more things about this book. Yeah. The first is a list of bullet points. Love because this. One this of the is the chief, part I'm most excited for. One of the chief delights about this book is just the random facts that he discovers that. Like you didn't need to know, but then you know Just them and then now you Ian do yeah. with your salty list. So my, one of my favorites is that the Lithuanians have a patron saint of pickling. Oh, <laughs> and his name is, let me try this. Ragushis. Can't be correct, but I love Ragushis. the effort. Ragushis. That's Razagul. It's not Razagul. Preser- he, he was uh, looking after eternal life, perhaps in being dipped into salt. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We never talk about whether the what are they called? The inferno pits or whatever. If the, it's just extra the salt in there. In. It's basically pickling, Brian. Salt. <laughs> <laughs> they, they Batman, do you want to dunk a whole bunch of times in vinegar and salt? Mm-hmm. It'll make you live forever. Brother. Bring me to 120 um, degrees. Here's another ball point. The ancient Romans made made purple fabric with two things, mushed up seashells and salt. Here's another one. The origin of the words salary and soldier and salami and salad are all salt. He goes he goes bonkers with the word word origins here. It's so much fun. He's like, hey, all these words that you didn't think related to salt. Guess what? what? Basically, if it starts with S, it's salt. The Anglo-Saxon word for a salt works was which w-i-c-h so anytime you got a town in england that ends in w-i-c-h that has a salt works nearby so the town of norwich like a mine like a salt mine salt works a salt works is is any number of things usually not a mine usually it was a big uh, uh, a big uh pan over a fire that they would boil either seawater or brine in and boil off the water and you get salt and then scrape it out Oh, okay got it as we established the other way to get salt. Yes. Uh, I'm just going to present this bullet point. I'm going to present this bullet point without comment. I refuse to take any questions on it. Great. This is a direct quote, quote from the book. Love apples make a fine ketchup. Oh yeah. I have a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> it's a common saying. Yeah. Um, more, more naming stuff. Um, when you take brine and you evaporate the salt, the sodium chloride out of it, the leftover is called mother liquor. <laughs> no comment there sounds like a lonely island song <laughs> does um that's a spinal tap song <laughs> <laughs> i mentioned the thing about salt mines sealing themselves shut that's true uh if you're mining in a mountain of rock salt um the pressure from the rock salt above will crush your mine shafts so you always have to be shaping them and changing them and if you leave them the same way for too long you will be stuck inside salt inside a salt mine is as slippery as uh like fresh ice 
So trucks driving on salt have to have um, four-wheel drive. Salt is the only rock we eat. I already said that one. And the last one I want to point out, he goes into prosciutto. This is not a good book to read when you're hungry because he has this chapter (laughs) on like Parmesan and then he pivots beautifully to prosciutto. Of course. Um, The original prosciutto, which is prosciutto de Parma. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've just been transported. They said there was a law. Kind of like, you guys know the the German Reinheitsgebot? Absolutely not. Reinheitsgebot. (laughs) The German Reinheitsgebot is the German law that was enforced for like a thousand years. You know this, Joe. Yeah, I think it's, is it about beer? Is it the one yeah. about beer? Yep. Oh, there's only allowed to be like four ingredients or something like that. I, I Three, I, I barley, exactly. barley, yeast, and water. That was it. Barley, yeast, and water. Uh, and eventually they said, like after four or 500 years, they said, okay, you can put one or two hops in there, but that's you it. You know, that's the problem with the Germans. You start allowing one or two hops and pretty soon one thing leads to another and we all know where that leads. You yeah. should stop. Um, <laughs> so, so similar to the Reinheitsgebot, the Parm, the Parmese, the Parm, the Parm, Anyway, the people from Parma made this law that if you're going to make, yeah, the the Parmigians, the the Parmigianos, if you're going to make prosciutto, it must be made from pigs that fed on the byproducts made from Parmesan cheese. So when you make cheese, you make you whip out the whey, and the whey is protein rich, and the the Parmig the Parma folks the parmies were so into their parmesan cheese that they said the only right prosciutto the only good prosciutto comes from pigs that are fed on whey from parmesan cheese that's it. i wonder if it comes out salty like like you know like, <laughs> the like way, when you, no. When you cut it no you is this how italians are about everything oh no it has I to be done well. just this way this is the only way to do it it's like really yeah. <laughs> you do it differently it's good not real prosciutto God. you have to but, buy it from this region but it sounds like I want to have some. Yeah, of this I'd like to try that, that for amazing. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Roll Dahl, we have an author birthday coming up, Mr. Dahl. Mr. Dahl. Roll oh. Dahl. How, where is he from? Because that is a, it's a very, very garbly name. He's Norwegian. It, it is. He's it's Norwegian. It feels Norwegian. Well, it, uh, hang yeah. on. Maybe he was yep. a British subject, but his folks were Norwegian. That doesn't mm. matter. It, it definitely feels Scandinavian. North, let's say Northern European. Yeah, it's Norwegian now. Or Minnesotan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Um, well, gentlemen, do you guys uh, want to bring some Roald Dahl books? What, what did he write? The Peach one? Oh, he wrote so much stuff, Nick. He wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He wrote the BFG. He wrote James and the Giant Peach, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. He wrote Matilda. He wrote others, probably. The rest. The and the rest. Oh, mm-hmm. Dahl and his work have been criticized for racial stereotypes, misogyny, and, and anti-Semitism. Well, yeah, yeah of course. he wrote these in like the 1960, <laughs> 1970, like, I don't know. In 2021, Forbes ranked in the top earning dead celebrity. Wow. Celebrity dead. Fan of the show. <laughs> Known racist. <laughs> Roll Dahl. <laughs> He's here, baby. Um, what books, what Dahl books would you like to hear about, Nick? Joe, you have brought the sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the past, correct? That's true. And have you read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I think think maybe a long time ago. Why don't you bring that one and tell us which is better? (laughs) (laughs) The the iconic first one or the second sequel. Mm. And then uh, Ian, wow, he, he wrote Gremlins? 
He wrote the Gremlins. I'm not sure if that was turned into the movie. He wrote the 1991 screenplay was, for oh, Gremlins. Whoa, this sounds cool. Yeah, why don't you bring that shit? Okay. Feel free to lean into his racism as well. I'd like to hear some more about that. Yeah, and you guys um, like that stuff. <laughs> I like my steak medium rare. Um, <laughs> so if you could have that ready for me next week as well, too. Uh-huh. I'll and I'll let you, you know if there's anything else I need. Was there a lot of salt in your book? Okay, so one thing that's, as you were talking about this, and as I look at his other titles, I think it's pretty clear that as he gets into these fields of research, one book comes from the one before it. Because like the history of Cod is in some ways, like it touches upon the history of salt. Like you have to salt the cod and you have to dry the cod and and I'll get into it as I go. But then, well, whatever. So yeah, yes, so there's so, quite a bit of salt in my book. I, I'm not surprised, and that kind of tracks in my book for 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 my part. There's a lot of fish in the medieval section, especially. There's a lot of cod. <laughs> I kind of felt like a, like in a in a Marvel movie when some random guy just shows up and you're like, oh dang, just it's that dude up. from yeah from with the shooters and stuff, right? Um, or when you watch a TV show and like they have a weird episode that's meant yes. to spin off the pilot of a different TV show. Good. This is in my notes. Back to our pilot style. It's like he is sort of testing out his COD stuff um, on this in this salt. I mean, and it's, piece here. it's real good because he's he's talking about like how salting allows COD to be this hugely important factor. I don't want to give any anything away for Joe, but mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's great the way he weaves in COD. And it's great knowing that there's a COD book if you want to know more. I don't particularly yeah. want to know more about COD. Is it right. sound kind of gross, but you like that COD stuff? We have a spinoff. Which exactly. book came first? I want to know which book came first. Mine is 1999. Oh, yours is 99. Mine is 2000. Interesting. Ooh, like you are the spinoff. I thought, okay. I, I, I This read like he was sort of setting up COD stuff, but I bet he wrote COD and was like, there's too much salt stuff to <laughs> say. I've got to... Yeah. I've got to do a separate salt. That book. probably wow. is. You know, it's it's like the MCU though, where it's like you. It doesn't really matter yeah. the order that you watch them in. You kind of get the feeling of the overall picture, and then they kill Thanos at the end. Uh, Spoilers for last book. I don't, I not, to be fair, I haven't seen the last movie, and okay. I, it is pop culture knowledge that they kill Thanos. Okay. If you haven't seen it by now, don't waste your time. <laughs> oh no, Joe, you're going to tell us about COD, please. Okay, Nick. Do you remember everything that Ian said about like this book has a bunch of recipes and it has a bunch of fun facts and it touches on, on all these different areas of the world and stitches them together into a cohesive narrative except but like but salt. Mm. So all of that stuff is exactly true of my book. Yeah. But cod. This is very similar. This whole genre is very similar to your other neo journalists, neo journalist, new journalist. Uh, author that you've brought in the past, right? Is is that he in that category? Yeah. So I, you're thinking of John McPhee uh, or John John McAfee? Oh, John no, McAfee, J- not John McAfee, John McPhee. <laughs> Nick, you're right. No, you're right. Yeah, I think you're I absolutely think right. John McAfee, John John McPhee, not not McAfee. John McPhee is whatever one of these guys. I picked up a book from him at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco recently. Wow, that is a pretentious sentence. Yeah, Keep I going. <laughs> I loved it. He just goes into, he's like, hello, Swiss Army. May I go tag along for a while? And the Swiss Army's yep. like, sure. So he tags along with the Swiss Army for a while. I can't wait to read it. John McPhee. Wait, abs- is, this, is this the 
guy who wrote about canoes. Birch bark canoe. This is the guy yes. that wrote about levels okay, of the game. Yeah. Yes, oranges. Yes, from the man who brought you oranges <laughs> and canoes. Well, and I think John McPhee is like the canonical, canonical example of this kind of yeah. writing. I had never yeah. heard it called micro histories before, but I think it's a really good description yeah. for what this is. And Ian touched on it. It's like, hey, you know, salt. You know, cod. That thing that you've never really thought very much of in your life. Let me give you 300 pages about why it is the most interesting thing on the planet. And it's a really risky premise, but I think part of the fun of these books is it's a premise that, when it's done well, can really pay off. Like in the past, that used to be like almost a promise. Well, like, hey, if this got published, it must be interesting. But now Mm -hmm. we know that is not the case anymore with books. (laughs) <laughs> right. It could be like a BuzzFeed article where it's like the 23 most interesting things about cow. 22 is pretty fishy. Oh, fucking your time is over. <laughs> so That's no, but good. like when I look at his books, I he's dipped into this and has done quite a bit. And, um, you know, like he has a book about salt. He has a book about cod. He has a book about the Basques, which actually feature kind of prominently in my book. Mine too. Um, he has a book about the bird's eye people, which are with the bird's eye family, which is like the family that started the frozen vegetable company, oh, wow. which also feature really prominently in my book, right? Like it's so clear. This guy just goes in these deep, deep, research dives until he has enough stuff where he's like, yeah, this could be a book. <laughs> Joe, what is, uh, what's the most interesting you learned thing you learned about cod? All right. The, the most interesting thing I learned about cod is this, and it's a little bit of a story that I'm going to tell you. And, and of course, is the it about farm. It's not about a farm. Dang it. <laughs> the Dang most it. interesting thing about cod is <laughs> okay. Nick, I'm going to set the scene. It's the 1400s. No, it's not. It's 2022. Ian, please do not make his stories take longer. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not my story. It's this story. <laughs> All right, Nick. In the 1400s, um, we Europeans were sending explorers westward, right? Like in search of a route to China, right? You're familiar with this. You've heard of a guy called Christopher Columbus. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He sure did. At the time in Europe, Cod was huge. Like it was the staple of economies. It was like the number one consumed item in England and Spain and like all over Europe. It was like the Big Mac. It was it was like the Big Mac. And part of it is because cod is like it is incredibly prolific in the ocean, especially the Atlantic Ocean. Um, There's accounts from very, very long ago that said the cod were so thick in the Atlantic Ocean that you could walk to like from England to Iceland, like the cod were so thick in the North Sea between those two places. It's a disgusting visual. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> it's, it's not great. <laughs> so the cod is huge. Everybody, Everybody's like selling cod. Everybody's fishing cod. Everybody has like their areas staked out because, of course, there's only certain spots you can catch them. And all of a sudden, this little ethnic group from the north of Spain called the Basque start showing up with cod, like this beautiful, massive, dried, cured, salted cod. And nobody knows where they're getting it. Like the English are like, they're not fishing by us. And the Icelandic people are like, they're not fishing by us. Nobody knows where they're getting it. A cod mystery. That's the premise. That's the beginning of this story. It's a big mystery. Is it magic? Think it's, it's magic. It's they apparated um, the cod apparated from Hogwarts. Yes. Oh, cool. Columbus goes to America. He he's looking for China. He hits the Caribbean. OK, Oops. the English are like, oh, hey, he didn't successfully get to China because he ran into stuff. But we think there's a northern route to China. So we are going to send our own um, explorer. We're going to find a northern route to China. 
they go north. Well, they go north and they ran into not China, but Canada. When they got to Canada, there's a lot. It's there's a lot of stuff between England and China. If you go that way, trying England, you're not going to get there. There's a whole thing in the middle. When they got to Canada, they described pulling up to shore and in the harbors in uh, at Canada were 1000 Basque ships who had been going to Canada fishing for cod, drying it on the shores for decades at that point, and never, ever, ever telling anybody where they got it. They think that the Basques arrived in the Americas decades before Christopher Columbus ever did and never told anybody about it because it was their secret fishing spot. Sly. <laughs> oh, wow. That's like the greatest secret fishing spot ever. You know, yes. like when uh, old men go out on ponds and they're like, don't mm-hmm. tell anybody about my spot. It's kind of like that. Yeah, the Basques did that for like 80 years. He talks about this. <laughs> this, this he tells the same story in Salt. And he makes that explicit connection. It's like when you're a fisherman, you don't spill the beans in your spot. Like you might say, I know a spot, but you don't say, and no. let's go look. You just and don't. You don't it is. <laughs> yeah. And, and they loved it because even though, even when they thought that the Basque had some like secret spot in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, they couldn't figure out how they were drying them because you can't dry cod on a boat. Like you need to be able to like, you need a lot of land. You need to be able to spread it out. So they had canada in which to dry it it's my Mm, favorite story from this entire book and this book is filled with stories like that nick can i tell you a little bit about cod (laughs) yeah let's fucking do it man it's a fish right right? yeah it's are we gonna get into like varieties flavor Um, where do you want to take this how much fat would you say a cod has very lean ian very lean it hangs out at the bottom of the ocean yeah very lean in fact when you catch fresh cod they describe it i've never actually seen a fish like this but they describe fresh cod is so lean that when you like open it and cook it they talk about it being like flaky it almost like flicks uh flakes apart like uh uh, like dandruff, sir, or like something more delicious, well, like, it's like been delicious cooked. potato chips. It, yeah, like almost like good, it's been good, cooked. good fish is supposed to flake when it's cooked. Mm-hmm. But this fish is so unholy and unnatural that it's like pre-cooked. <laughs> OK, um, Nick, you, you asked about like, are we going to get into varieties? Or are we going to get into the species? Are we going to get into the yeah, fishing yeah, territories? Cod. Yeah, the answer is, is that. I'm not going to get into those things, mm-hmm. but um, my book definitely does Whoa. get into those things. It talks about what species are superior and why the Atlantic cod is like pretty much the best cod. It talks about how a huge part of the decision of the United States purchasing Alaska is because of the fantastic cod fishing that was off the shores of Alaska. Like they bought it for the cod industry out there. Um, cod, the, a few facts about the fish. <clears throat> We should really have been kind of keeping track of how many times you guys have said cod and salt. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a count. This is count, this is pretty back on the re-record. This is pretty um pretty labor intensive for you, but could you put a little ding sound effect in every time? We're <laughs> every time like yeah. a, ding, a ding for salt and a dong for cod or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> ding dong, right. ding dong. Cod is crazy prolific. It's kind of like the rabbit of the ocean. Um, It eats absolutely everything. It grows relatively fast to a very, very large size. Um, And unlike rabbits, which are just 
kind of like the pigeons of land, like where everything okay, takes whoa, 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 wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I got to sketch out this equivalency here. Cod are the rabbits of the ocean. Rabbits are the Which pigeons of land. What are pigeons? And don't say the pigeons cod of the air. Pigeons are the air. cod of the air. Not Obviously. Bizarre analysis. It's a closed loop. <laughs> this is, so, uh, it's so lost, Joe. <laughs> One cod, so cod are crazy prolific, but unlike those things like pigeons and rabbits, nothing eats them. They don't have that many predators in the Mm. wild, or at least where they range, they don't have that many predators. So throughout human history, they've been a big deal, right? They've been everywhere. You could like drop a net into certain parts and come out with more fish than you could eat in a lifetime. Um, A single cod uh, can produce up to 7 million eggs in its lifetime. And like I said, once full grown, it has virtually no predators. Congratulations to Khan. Mm-hmm. What's the second most interesting story you heard? The second most interesting story I heard is when the Vikings were leaving um, Norway and they were exploring kind of in the area that they would explore, which also they would they would reach Canada. Um, the map of the area that they explored if you overlay it on a map of where cod exists, it's like a one-to-one correlation. <laughs> like basically they explored until they could stop catching cod and then they came back inside of that. Like it, it the, uh, the book talks about Eric the Red being the first cod-powered traveler. <laughs> yeah, you gotta go where the fish are. Sounds like yeah, they didn't have much for storage for on their boats. Yeah, well, it, well actually the <laughs> idea of preservation was really tricky. Like it wasn't that they didn't have the storage on their boat, it was that they struggled to to preserve the fish. Um, The Vikings were able to do it a little bit by freezing it, right? They would actually pull the cod out of the water. They would freeze it. They figured out if we hang it outside for this amount of days, freezing it just in the cold North Atlantic air, if we hang it outside for so many days, it becomes like safe to eat and last for a long time. Just a brief side note. The other thing they would do sometimes is bury it in the ground. Sure. Um, That's tricky to do on a boat. Right, but they would take it back, and they would. I, I can't leave. I can't leave the the gravlax and the the yeah. um, the Icelandic buried rotten shark. Um, they would bury the fish in the ground, and that would supposedly preserve it. But then when you dug it up, it was just rotten. So <laughs> just rotten Not, fish. And they would. I mean, I I really don't understand the logic of that. But it made okay, it worse. Let me tell you where the narrative in this book comes from, because so far I've just given you like facts about cods, and there are a billion facts about cods in this book, but there is a narrative to it as well. The thesis here is that the history of cod is the history of Western civilization, right? And so many advances um, in Western civilization are possible only because of the existence of this insanely plentiful resource that allowed people to go into ocean-going vessels for the first time, Um, that allowed the pilgrims to come to America, where their entire plan for that first winter was to catch fish at Cape Cod. It turned out that they weren't very good at it. Yeah, Cape Cod. Do you think that's where the name... I I think it might be, Nick. Um, It it talked about how that the the plantations on Caribbean islands, like the slaves uh, working at plantations on Caribbean islands, were only possible because of the plentiful uh, cod in the sea. Cod fed the Union Army. Um, It is insanely important to some Sounds like cod's responsible for a lot of bad things, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Did did we ever think to stop to think, like, take away the cod, people start being nice? I love the fact that in 1999, Mark Kurlansky publishes a book that basically argues cod is the origin of all world history. And then in 2000, mm-hmm. he's like, no way to salt. 
<laughs> actually, <laughs> upon further review, the call on the field is overturned. It was actually salt, <laughs> not cod. Sorry, guys. Cod was once very plentiful, Nick, but like so many th- good things, um, it is not doing so hot anymore. Like the whole oh. last quarter of this book is basically, <laughs> hey, there used to be so much cod in the sea that you could basically pull them out at will. Right. Like entire economies, entire villages, entire communities existed based on like the easy access to cod. Well, we established that cod is bad. So is this a good thing, Joe? <laughs> well, it, well, it remains to be seen. <laughs> cod is not easy to access anymore. Um, it turns into, by the end of this book, a, really a story about like environmental mismanagement, environmental yep. folly and how like regulations, international, national, local regulations have failed to protect this thing that ended up being incredibly important for local national and international places see this is really fascinating because i was as i read my book i was thinking that it preceded joe's book so i was thinking Mm -hmm. joe's book would be kind of like hey cod was interesting i'm gonna dig deeper into that it's sounding more and more like mark kurlansky thoroughly bummed himself out with this cod book He's like, what's something that's not dying off? I need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that myself. was one question that came to mind when I, when you were talking about your book. I was like, is salt a limited resource? This is the first it's ever dawned on me. It's not. Well, I, I mean, maybe, but. Right. In the same way that like stars are a limited resource. I mean, they're they're huge, like eight mile deep pillars of pure rock salt. OK, what what are the cod facing overfishing global warming? Yeah, so, what are overfishing, they facing? Overfishing, climate change, really overfishing. Um, and and uh, you know, bad cod is bycatch, bad fishing practices, etc. Um, it really ends up being a book about like the history of fishing, fishermen, governments, control of national and international waters, um, the cod itself, and then like the public's demand for cod. And it ends up being like a pretty a, a, a pretty interesting book, like a, a pretty riveting book when it comes to like cod facts and kind of a bummer <laughs> when it comes to the fact that we're out of cod. <laughs> Vis-a-vis cod facts. But they are rebounded. Sorry, they are rebounded. Things oh, are, good. a lot of stuff is in place and they're rebounded. And 1999 was act, act, actually 23 years ago. So I, I was right. reminded of this with like, he talks about mo- like the modern era in 2000 and that's a long time ago. Things have changed yeah. dramatically since then. Yeah. And at the time um, there at the time of this book is written, there's a lot of regulations in place. Um, There's basically a moratorium on cod fishing in much of North America, at least in any industrialized fashion. Right. Like you can go out with a line and a hook and stuff like that. Um, And they do think the populations, even in 1999, they're hopeful that they are beginning to rebound. So a quick Google are cod. How are the cod cod doing? I love baby. The Atlantic cod is coming back after okay. strict catch limits. Okay, good. Any asterisks by that or? No, a research scientist says cod is in the early stages of a comeback. So I think we're good. Let's go fishing, baby. Mm-hmm. A research scientist employed by the Koch brothers and cod fish. The Canadian Broadcasting Company says after almost three decades, cod are still not back off yeah. NL. Newfoundland. Yeah, not good. Well, I guess they're having perch. <laughs> I guess during World I guess during World War II, there was a massive rebounding of cod. So like before World War II, people were like, hey, cod are getting super hard to catch. And then they basically stopped fishing for, you know, the duration of the Second World War because there were things like submarines that would sink you. Um, and then the cod all came back. So 
They're Thank back. That's good. Thank yeah, you. But, that, but now they're gone. Hey, hey, Joe, here's one for you. Yeah. Thank yep. God. Well, I yeah, just did that one, okay. but it was quiet, so you didn't hear it. Oh, Whatever. I'm sorry, Ian. That's probably right. it probably subconsciously went into my head and I stole it. <laughs> you have to talk loud on this we show. Got this, we <laughs> got this brain meld thing going on. <laughs> yeah. Show you lose. Cod sounds gross. Um, and <laughs> Ian, uh, and as we established, cod liver oil is gross and the worst. So yes. Ian, for those reasons and and only those reasons, uh-huh. <laughs> I want to thank cod liver oil for being gross today. Oh, Ian, um, yeah. first episode of Lord of the Rings, amazing. Second episode kind of lost me. So Uh-oh. we'll see. <laughs> Nick is out. Are you watching it? I'm not watching it. No, you're not gonna um here's my you're gonna you're gonna hate me for this no say here's my here's my snooty response i think you guys know i'm i'm i i'm a man of insufficient but um it's fan fiction strongly held principles i think if tolkien met jeff bezos he'd say oh saruman nice to meet you yeah (laughs) bezos is saruman amazon is isengard or what saruman wants isengard to be and i feel like I can't. Yeah, I just can't. I just can't. It's like it's like that show exists. The the quarter million billion quarter billion dollars paid for that was made off of like mistreating workers, regimenting potty breaks, you know, all mm. kinds of crap. And I just okay. man, that does so sound bad. like some Saruman stuff. That sounds it like does. an evil. That sounds like some evil white wizard stuff. Those equals Saruman. You heard it here first. This week brought to you. This week's episode brought to you by Hulu. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm not watching it. Maybe someday I will. It's fan fiction, and they're trying to like retcon it to make it more, um, you know, authentic. They're like involving Tolkien's son or whatever, great grandson, okay. and like, oh, they're, cool. like, they're coming out with a book next year, and it's like, okay, is is Jeff Bezos going to be on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, let's put the actors on the front. It's like, okay. See, I loved it when Stephen Colbert was such a super fan that he kind of weaseled his way into the Hobbit movies. Right. <laughs> but if Bezos makes himself an extra. Right. There's no way he's not in there. Yeah. It's like spot the Bezos. Uh, maybe spot he's in Bezos. every episode. Spot the Bezos. Hey, 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 let's, let's play spot the Bezos in the new Lord of the Rings show. If you're watching, go ahead and uh, just, just sound off in the comments. Look for a man with a massive, ridiculous cowboy hat. You should. Right. <laughs> Riding a space rocket. It's the cowboy hat. It's actually really easy to pinpoint. <laughs> what, what is that orc have a cowboy hat on? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Litheads, we love you so much. Um, you micro our history. No, that doesn't work. No, um, it doesn't. <laughs> Litheads, if you want to support the show, uh, the best thing you can do is head on over to you don't know litpodcast.com. You can suggest a book, you can suggest a theme, or like this week's loyal Lithead did, you could suggest both, which makes yeah. our job really, so really easy. easy. All we have to Good do job, is, Terry, is thank you. Yeah, read and say some dumb stuff at that point. Um, after that, you can head on over to you don't litpodcast.com and request a sticker Ian other stickers some stickers there are very few stickers left if you want a <laughs> sticker well whatever um and Bounce. finally head on you can um rate review like subscribe and tell a bookish friend congratulations Ian congratulations Jeff Bezos congratulations mm, Sauron yeah. yeah it happened um you guys know the concept of a cold open in a television show yeah that's yeah. when they just start talking they just yep. go. It drags you in. So the book, the cold open to my salt book is one of the most like intense, awesome, weird cold open book, cold opens I've, I've ever read. So I'm just going to read you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The rock. That's the title. The rock. 
Dwayne Great the Rock title, Johnson. right? You got Dwayne yeah. Johnson on board already. Yeah. Can I do a Sean Connery impression? Please. You slap him. Give him a little slap. <laughs> Welcome to the rock. <laughs> He's a piece that of shit. Never, never a mistake to let Nick do a Sean Connery impression. <laughs> yeah, he's a sexist monster. Okay. okay. Uh, the Rock. I bought The Rock in Spanish Catalonia in the rundown hillside mining town of Cardona. An irregular pink trapezoid with elongated curved indentations etched on its surface by raindrops. It had an odd translucence and appeared to be a cross between rose quartz and soap. The resemblance to soap came from the fact that it dissolved in water and its edges edges were worn smooth, like a used soap bar. I paid too much for it, nearly $15, but it was, after all, despite a rosy blush of magnesium, almost pure salt, a piece of the famous Salt Mountain of Cardona. The various families that had occupied the castle atop the next mountain had garnered centuries of wealth from such rock. I took it home and kept it on a windowsill. One day it got rained on, and white salt crystals started appearing on the pink. My rock was starting to look like salt, which would ruin its mystique, so I rinsed off the crystals with water. Then I spent 15 (laughs) minutes carefully patting the rock dry. By the next day, it was sitting in a puddle of brine that had leached out of the rock. The sun hit the puddle of clear water. After a few hours, square white crystals began to appear in the puddle. Solar evaporation was turning brine into salt crystals. For a while, it seemed I had a magical stone that would perpetually produce brine puddles. Yet the rock never seemed to get smaller. Some days, in dry weather, it would appear to completely dry out, but on a humid day, a puddle would again appear under it. I decided I could dry out the rock by baking it in a small toaster oven. Within a half hour, white stalactites were drooping from the toaster grill. I left the rock on a steel radiator cover, but the brine threatened to corrode the metal, so I transferred it to a small copper tray. A green crust formed on the bottom, and when I rubbed off the discoloration, I found the copper had been polished. My rock lives by its own rules. When friends stopped by, I told them the rock was salt, and they would delicately lick a corner and verify that it tasted just like salt. (laughs) Those who think a fascination with salt is a bizarre obsession have simply never owned a rock like this. (laughs) 